Now, I might be wrong. I'm told it takes seven years to become an expert, and my son is only six, so I'm not yet an expert at parenting. But I have a hunch that one of the most difficult things about being a parent is knowing when to step in when your kids are about to make a dumb decision. Now, when your kids are the age of my kids, it's kind of easy because, let's face it, most decisions they make are not very well thought out. And so, instinctively, you step in to stop them from hurting themselves. The other day, I witnessed one of my children uh, climbing onto a spinny office wheelie chair to reach the top cupboard that had the permanent markers in it. Like, like none of that is going to play out well. I stepped in. There was no question. But... Sometimes you start to wrestle. At what point do I step in to stop my kid making a dumb decision? Or do I let them learn from their mistakes? If you've got teenagers or if you've had teenagers in the past, you will have had to wrestle with this even more, I suspect. How much do I let them make mistakes? Friends, this morning we're reading a passage where Paul is playing the role of the parent. And he's stepping in. He is witnessing these children. He actually describes himself in this passage as a a labouring mother. He is in anguish for these children of his. He's watching them make a dumb decision. And there is no question in Paul's mind. He doesn't wonder, oh, I wonder, I'll see how this plays out. No, no, he steps in. He he sees them about to do something catastrophic. And so he's actually written this whole letter to address this really dumb decision. Now, I'm assuming that Daniel has taken you through. You've seen this decision that the Galatians are making. If you haven't been here, the Galatians have basically believed the gospel. They've been trusting in Jesus But then, for whatever reason, they have decided, they've been led astray to believe that they actually need to work for their salvation. They've believed this lie that to be acceptable to God, you need to trust Jesus and you need to be circumcised, the Old Testament marker of belonging to Jesus. They've allowed self-reliance into their faith. And so Paul is in anguish for them. He's labouring over them. He says he's already laboured over them once before. He he laboured in calling them to faith, in introducing them to Jesus. Now he's labouring over them again. He's in anguish. But he's not going to sit on the sidelines. He's stepping in. He's pleading with them to come back. And so this morning we're going to see three sort of things that that Paul says to these Galatian Christians, three things that he wants them to know about what a Christian really is so that he might persuade them back to faith in Christ alone. I neglected to send these three points to Daniel, so you don't have them on your outline, but they're fairly easy to remember. First of all, what is a Christian? Christians are redeemed slaves Secondly, Christians are adopted children. Thirdly, Christians are heirs of God. There are three things we're going to see this morning, three things that Paul wants the Galatians to know about what it truly means to have faith. But we begin in chapter 4, where Paul's actually continuing on an argument from the previous chapter. He's made the case 
just at the end of chapter 3, that the true children of Abraham are not circumcised Jews, but those who have faith. He's saying that being circumcised, that's not what makes you belong to God. No, trusting Jesus does. And so in chapter 4, he continues by arguing that any Jew that is still waiting for God's promises to Abraham to be fulfilled, anyone that's still waiting for the outcome of what God promised, he says they are like a kid who is too young to take possession of their father's inheritance. And he says that makes them no better than a slave. Now, this is a bit tricky. It's a confusing argument. But I want you to imagine a little Prince George over there in... Where do the royals live? Buckingham, Windsor Castle? I don't know. You know what I'm talking about. The royals. Little Prince George, little nine-year-old heir to the throne. He's kind of one of the most powerful and important people in the world. It's likely, if the monarchy lasts that long, that he'll become king of the British Empire. But until then, what does he have? He has a pretty privileged upbringing, but does he have freedom? I doubt it. I don't think that kid makes any choices for himself. He's surrounded by people who are advising him, who are telling him, who are instructing him. He's basically a slave. He's a very privileged slave, don't get me wrong, but he's a slave. Because every little bit of his life is controlled by someone else. Now, Paul here in Galatians is saying that Jewish descendants of Abraham who are still waiting for God to fulfill his promises are the same. They are slaves. But not just them, he says that everyone, Jew and Gentile, believer or unbeliever, everyone is a slave. And he he says in verse 3 that they were slaves under the basic principles of the world in in the the version that was read for us, or the elemental spiritual forces of the world. Basically, what he's saying is that every single person alive, every man, every woman, every child, religious or non-religious, everyone is a slave to Satan's demonic power. Now, that sounds like crazy talk, doesn't it? That sounds like the beginnings of a conspiracy theory. But this is actually how the Bible talks about our sin. It is slavery to Satan. Now, if you're a Christian, you're thinking, I was never a slave to Satan. Like, that, like I may have done some things, but I was never a slave to Satan. No, it didn't seem like you were, did it? That's because Satan is good at deceiving us, becoming slaves to other things. He entices us with other things. And it's easy to see how that plays out when someone's a slave to something like money or popularity or success. Because most people today, most people live their lives in slavish pursuit of these things. Where every decision basically comes down to, can I get more money? Or will this make me more friends? Or will this gain me more success? I reckon you've seen some of this in your own life. Before I came to know Jesus, I was a slave to the approval of others. Basically, I would, I would compromise everything 
if it won me more friends, if it made people think well of me. We were all at once slaves. We made something our God, something or some things. When you let that thing get in the way, when something gets in the way of you getting that thing, whether it's getting more money or getting more success or more, uh, you know, friends, you, you get angry. When you fail at getting those things, you become miserable. You may even be come so desperate that you're willing to lie or cheat or steal to get that thing that you want, that thing that you are a slave to. If you remember a few years back with the Australian cricket team in the drama in South Africa, this is what happened. They were desperate to win. They were slaves to winning. They wanted the glory of being the best. And so what did it lead them to do? It led them to cheat. They were slaves. And friends, Paul says that all of us were once slaves. Slaves to Satan's power. Slaves to things that we treated like gods. We never thought we were serving Satan. But what did Satan do with these things? He made us not trust in God. We were slaves to things that we thought would make us happy, that we thought would satisfy us, that we thought would make a life. But in the end, these things just eat us alive. They consume us. They destroy us. But here's the astounding thing that Paul's saying, because Paul says here that even religious people, Even people who are trying to please God by obeying his laws, even they are slaves. They've been deceived into thinking that they can earn God's favour or that they can take God's blessings by themselves, by working for them, by doing something. And so they've worked and they've worked and they've worked trying in this endless pursuit to become pleasing or moral or righteous before God. They are slaves. Religious people are slaves. Non-religious people are slaves. You were once a slave. But here's the thing in verse 4. When the set time had fully come, at just the right time, God sent just the right person to redeem you, to purchase you out of that slavery. At exactly the moment that God had chosen from the very beginning, God sent us exactly what we needed. What did he send? He sent Jesus, born of a woman's, meaning he was fully human, like us, so that he could redeem humans like us. He was born under the law, so that he was able to redeem people condemned by the law. And he was born... God. Jesus was God. Jesus is God. Which means he and only he had the authority to redeem us from slavery, to buy us back from Satan's power. You see, at just the right time, God sent just the right person to redeem you. And friends, the thing we need to see this morning is is that unless Jesus came, to redeem us, we would still be slaves to sin. We would still be on that endless path trying to make a life for ourselves. 
trying to find joy and happiness and satisfaction and meaning in life in something that is not God. And you might be still doing that today. You might be still seeking the approval of people. That's all you really want in life. As long as people think well of you, then you've made a life for yourself. Or you might be on the endless pursuit for success. You want to know that you have won, that you've achieved. Or maybe you're on the endless pursuit for money, thinking that money will be your ticket to having the life. My friends, that is slavery. We will endlessly be chasing, never getting. Or we'd be religious people who are also slaves, who are trying endlessly working to gain God's love and God's approval and never getting because we're doing it by trying to work and we're not good enough. Friends, we were all Slaves, deeply enslaved, so enslaved that we didn't even realize we were slaves. But you were bought. Jesus has redeemed you. At the cost of his own blood, he bought you back, paying the price so that you would never have to be a slave again. Now, the Galatians knew this. They were redeemed. But now it seems that they are walking their way back into captivity They've tasted liberation, but they've somehow become convinced that it is better for them to try and earn God's love rather than just to receive it. It's so stupid. And so Paul is watching them make this stupid mistake and he's pleading with them. And so as he shows the, as he goes on, he shows them that actually you're not just slaves that have been redeemed. No, no, you've been, something even greater has happened. Because as we keep reading, we see that Jesus didn't just redeem us from slavery and then leave us be. He offered you even more. Because Paul says that Jesus redeemed us, verse 5, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Jesus redeemed you, not just so that you would be justified before God, declared not guilty, but that you might belong to him. And this is the second amazing blessing of the gospel that Paul wants the Galatians to know. He wants them to know that they're walking away from this blessing. And it's this, that on at the moment at which the judge of all the earth declared you not guilty in the criminal court, he then stepped into the family court and said, I'm going to adopt you. You're going to be mine. And it gets even better than that because God sent Jesus so that we might have the status of being a child of God. He sent his son to adopt us. We have that legal status as a child. But in verse 6, Paul tells us that God also gives us his spirit so that you might experience that, that you might get to enjoy relating to God as your father. He says, and because you are his sons, God sent his spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. These are the words of a child that delights in their father. Abba, Daddy. Now, friends, what that means is that one of the ways that you know you're a Christian is when you start relating to God, not just as God, but as Father. 
Lots of people in churches today talk about God. Yes, I believe in God. God is the omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient creator and judge of all the universe. But they're talking about God like he's kind of from a different planet. He's out there. He's far away. He's distant. But do you know what the difference is for a Christian? It's not that God is any less than that. God is still the all-powerful, all-creating God judge of the universe. But for the Christian, you get to take that God and have the courage to call him your father. That you get to have that God as your father. A God that you will have a relationship with. A God that you actually want to talk to. The God that you delight in listening to. He's not just a far off God. He is my God. So friends, is that how you relate to God? Think about when you pray, if you pray, what what's the picture of God that comes to mind? Is he the far off kind of scary, not really sure what he's like God? Or is he father? Friends, the only way that you can call God your father is when God gives you his spirit. And this is actually one of the most amazing, most life-transforming things that the Holy Spirit does in the Christian. We, we somehow have been led to believe that the Holy Spirit's job is to heal and do miracles and make us speak in tongues. Friends, this is what the Holy Spirit is for. Now, don't get me wrong, the Holy Spirit is God. He can do all sorts of amazing things in people's life. But do you know what the Holy Spirit promises it to do in your life? He promises to open your eyes so that you can experience God as your father. He promises to humble you so that you might realize that you need God. He promises to open your eyes to see that God offers you exactly what you need. He promises to enable you to be reconciled to God in a way that you could never have done by yourself. I wonder, do you have a person in your life that you've just cut ties with, don't want anything to do with anymore? Maybe there's an ex, maybe there's a friend that you had a fight with, maybe there's a member of your family that you just can't handle anymore, and you you might not hate them, but you certainly don't want anything to do with them anymore. Do you have that person in your life? There's nothing in all the world that could make you want to reconcile with that person. Nothing in all the world that would make you want to try to mend that relationship. Do you have that person? Because you did. Because that's exactly what it was like between us and God. Paul says in Romans that we were God's enemy. We hated God. Now, we might not have known the God that we hated, but we hated him. We couldn't stand him. We couldn't bear the thought of someone who would who would be in control of our lives, someone who would tell us what to do. We couldn't bear the thought of there being someone more important in the world than me. There was nothing in all the world that could have possessed you to want God. Nothing in all the world that would make you want to have a relationship with that God. 
There was nothing in all the world, and so it took something from out of this world. It took something supernatural. It took God himself working in you, softening your hard heart, opening your eyes, making you want God, humbling you to accept God, allowing you to love God. And friends, the point here is that all of this, all of this is something that we couldn't do ourselves. We couldn't redeem ourselves from slavery. We couldn't reconcile ourselves to God. We couldn't have God as our father. All of this is something that God did for us. He redeemed us. He adopted us. He gave us his spirit so that we might experience his fatherly love. But there's one more thing that Paul wants to show us. So that God doesn't just make us children. He makes us full-blown heirs. Now, in verse 21 to the end, Paul uses the story of the two sons of Abraham to set up a contrast between those who are living under the law, personified by Hagar and her son Ishmael, and those who are children of the promise, personified by Sarah and her son Isaac. Now, it's a bit of a weird thing that Paul does here. He kind of uses this story as an analogy. Now, we didn't read this part of Genesis this morning, but a little bit later on the passage that we read this morning, we hear the story of God promising Abraham a son. But you remember, if you recall the story, Sarah, his wife, was barren. She wasn't able to have children. She was also very old, beyond the age of anyone having children. And so, Sarah and Abraham decided that the best way for them to take hold of this son that God had promised them was to use the servant girl, Hagar, and Abraham would father a son with her. God doesn't like it. God says, no, I'm going to give you a son. You're not going to go take a son for yourself. And eventually Sarah bears a son, Isaac. One of those sons, Isaac, is the child of promise, the one God promised. And it is Isaac and his descendants who take hold of the promises that God made to Abraham. He is the one who receives the inheritance, not Ishmael. So here Paul's using this story to show that there are really only two kinds of people in the world. There are people who try to get from God, people who try to earn, who try to work, who view God as a vending machine of blessings and you just need to work out how to shove it in the right way to get the blessings to pour out, or there are people who receive from God. Paul calls them children of the flesh, or children of the promise. And only one of these children receives the inheritance that God promises. You don't get God's blessing by earning it. You don't get it by getting. You you get it by receiving. And so, friends, here's the point. If you've put your trust in Jesus, then you are not only a child of Abraham, a child of the promise who received all that God promised him, You are that. If you've believed in Jesus, you become a child of Abraham. You become an heir of those promises. But it's better than that because you are now a child of God. 
a son of God, and you receive everything that belongs to his firstborn son. Which means that everything that Jesus is entitled to, you will share in. Everything that belongs to him is yours. Now, I can, I can barely get my head around that. But here's the important bit. There's only one way that we will experience any of these blessings. Only one way that we can be children of the promise. And Paul spells it out for us in verse 30. He says, get rid of the slave woman. Get rid of that sense of self-reliance. Get rid of any thought in your head that you can earn God's blessings. That you can do something to reach out and grab God's inheritance. Kill that. Get rid of any reliance on yourself, on your upbringing, on your church attendance, on your baptism, on your day-to-day performance as a Christian. Get rid of any hint that the strength of your faith is the thing that will make the difference between you being a child of God and you not. Get rid of that. Send it away because all of those things will only enslave you. And brothers and sisters, you are not a slave. You are free. You've been bought by the precious blood of Jesus to belong to him. You've been adopted by God through the gift of his spirit. You've been made an heir. And friend, you are looking forward to receiving all that belongs to Jesus. Friends, there's there's no more important question in all the world than do you know this gospel? Do you believe that all of this is yours through what Jesus has done? And so it's my hope, it's my prayer that you do. If you don't, I would love to talk to you after the service. Talk to someone else here. Don't don't leave this place with that question unanswered. Do you know this gospel? But how about we pray? Lord God, we thank you for this gospel, this good news that we have been redeemed from our slavery to sin, that we can belong to you, that we can be your adopted children, That we can relate to you as our Father, knowing that you love us, that you care for us, that you are deeply committed to us. And Lord, we thank you that we are looking forward to being your heir, that we will inherit all that belongs to Jesus, that we will have the intimacy of relationship with you that we could only dream of now. Lord, we thank you that you offer us all this, not because we're good, not because we've deserved it, not because we can earn it, but by your grace. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us be recipients of grace, that we would cling to these promises, that we would treasure them all our days, and that we would live our lives in continual thanksgiving for what you have offered us in the gospel.
And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.